Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. So there's a curious word. A word that we use fairly frequently that has different nuances to it. Single. I might say, for example, in the World Series, he hit a single. He's on first base. It's the tying run, and that's a very good thing. I might say, hey, you got a single? I'm trying to get a drink here, and and I just need a, a, a dollar bill. Here it is. That's a good thing. If you're in the UK and you say, my ticket is a single, all you're saying is it's not a round-trip ticket, it's a one-way ticket. Not a bad thing. Or we might say, this bed is a single. And all we mean by that, it was made for one person to sleep in. It's a single. Or we might say, hey, did you hear the single from that album? That single is the best song on the whole album. That makes the whole album worth the price. That's a very good thing. Or we might speak of her and say, you know what? She has an eye single to the purposes and the plan of God in her life. And that's a very good thing. But then when we say, he's single, or she's single, suddenly it gets a little more nuanced. We're not quite as certain how we feel. Here next Sabbath, during the pastoral welcome, a pastor will stand here and will say, I want to invite all of you who are in the service or have been in the service to stand because this week we're celebrating Veterans Day and a number of people will stand, we'll all applaud and feel good about it. Or if I stood up and said, hey, any of you who've been to South America, would you stand? Or if I said, how many of you first came to Loma Linda because you were going to study, would you stand? We would all be great with that. And then if I say, okay, would all the single people, um, no, 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 it doesn't work. We kind of back off at that point and realize that this word can be actually somewhat of a loaded term in terms of the emotional baggage we've given to it. That's curious because a lot of us are single. In fact, according to Pew Research Center, as recently as 2020, just over one-third of adults in the United States are single unmarried, unattached, some 130 million of us. That's in the country, I dare say, in the congregation today, in our church. At any given service, there will be many people who are single. Now, what's curious about the Pew Research study is that they found that 50%, imagine that, 50% of the people with whom they engaged 
were happy with where they were. They didn't have any plan to get into a relationship and didn't feel the loss of not being in a relationship. I'm good, they said. A quarter of the people said, I am single, but I'm open. If the right person comes along in the right situation, the right circumstance, I would like to be in a relationship. And then the rest of them broke down in other different categories. The bottom line is there are a lot of us who are single, and a fairly good number of us are happy about it, and some others may be okay, but may be looking to have a relationship ultimately in their life. Now, for all those 50% that said we're happy as we are, I don't know what would happen if you asked them the question six months later, a year later. They may have changed. But the bottom line is there are a lot of us. So the question we want to ask today is what ought the church the disciples of Jesus, what ought we to communicate, to say to the single people among us? Here's what I hope we can say. Contentment, contentment, that elusive virtue, that virtue that is so hard for all of us, contentment is a possibility in the single life. Contentment is a possibility. Now, that would be good news if we said that to married people, I think. That would be good news if we said that to parents of teenage children, I think. That would be good news if we said that to teenage children, I think. In other words, it's a good message for any of us, but in a specific way. It's an important message for single people, and that's what I want to try to unpack in the time we're together. Contentment, that elusive virtue, is possible. It is a possibility. Now, we would probably hasten to ask, how is that possible, and why is it possible? And my first answer would be, it is possible because of the covenantal love of Jesus. The covenantal love of Jesus makes contentment a possibility. But what does that mean in actual practice, in real life? Because I don't enjoy preachers who do this, and I don't want to then do it myself, who say some nice things, but we walk out thinking, well, wait a minute, what exactly does that mean? How does that exactly apply to my life? As has been said, I walked in just as I was, and I came out just as I was. Nothing really changed. So what exactly does it mean to say contentment is a possibility for a single person because of the covenantal love of Jesus? Well, let's begin in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is an interesting chapter. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he comes to the point in the letter where he's going to answer questions that they have asked him. They have apparently sent an emissary to Paul with certain questions about the living out of their lives as Christ's followers. And now he's going to try to answer those questions. One of the questions apparently had to do with marriage and divorce and sexuality and possibly even singleness. Paul will certainly get into that, but some of that is his own bias. There apparently had been the introduction of Gnostic thinking into the church at Corinth, scholars believe, which had said matter, physical things like the body, are not good, they're inherently evil, and spirit is pure and good, which meant then 
That if that was the case, then sexuality was out of bounds for somebody who truly wanted to be a spiritual person. In fact, it seems that they had even gotten to the point of saying, if you're a married person, and if sexuality is indeed not good, because the body is evil, matter is evil, and spirit is pure, then your partner will be your number one source of temptation. So it may be better just to divorce. And they come to Paul with these questions. Paul begins 1 Corinthians 7 with this sentence. Now, regarding the questions you asked in your letter. So right up front, he tells us, this is going to be listening to a one-way phone conversation. You're going to get my side of it, but we don't have the letter they sent with their emissary, so we don't know all the ins and outs of that. But we can piece a lot of it together. The first part of what Paul says is, look, God designed you. These are my words, my summary. God designed you as good. God designed you and incarnated his son in flesh. You can be both of physical flesh and a spiritually deep person. You can be married and spiritual. You can be sexual and spiritual. Do not divorce over these matters. That is not the way to go. He speaks more poignantly and more directly to this issue in this chapter than he does anywhere else in all of his writings. And then he gets to this issue, the issue of singleness. Now, it quickly becomes evident that Paul has his own feelings about this. Paul is a single person. And his bias becomes evident. He will, in essence, say, hey, I wish all of you were like I am. Because this frees me from the cares of this life in a much greater way to be able to focus on the gospel. I'd like all of you to be single, but, you know, that's not from the Lord. Uh, that's from me. But I think the Lord would approve, just to be clear. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to be single, but, yeah, that's, you think about it. You know, this is what he does throughout the chapter. In other words, he's elevating singleness as a, not only a viable lifestyle, but in his mind, not of the Lord, the preferred form of relational status. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 32. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married and, or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord in holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord the best with as few distractions as possible. But if a man thinks... He's treating his fiancée improperly and will inevitably give in to his passion. Let him marry her as he wishes. It's not a sin. But if he's decided firmly not to marry, and there's no urgency and he can control his passion, he does well not to marry. So the person who marries his fiancée does well, and the person who doesn't marry does even better. <laughs> he can't quite let it go there, can he? He just still introduces, says, this to me is the preferred way. Now, we read that from our perspective and think, well, that's a little bit odd. But, okay, so it's Paul. He's single, I understand. But from their perspective, it would have represented a sea change of approach. 
Rodney Clapp, in his book, Families at the Crossroads, talks about this in depth. He helps us understand the Old Testament background, the ancient Hebrew context for what it meant to be married or single. And he underlines the fact that in the Old Testament, singleness was almost unknown. It was not okay. It was not acceptable. In fact, Clapp says, in the Hebrew language of the day, there was no word that would be translated in English as bachelor. Didn't exist. When they sat down to watch TV at night, they couldn't watch The Bachelor, Bachelorette. Didn't exist. Because marriage was vital for probably many reasons, but one in particular, one especially. You judge the blessings of God on your life in a variety of different ways in the Old Testament. Could be your growing flocks and herds, your abundant harvest. Your, your orchards that were filled with fruit. There could be many ways to gauge it, but none more important than children. Children. And in that con cultural context, especially the oldest son who would carry the family name. Part of the reason this was so important that in the Old Testament context, there was very little understanding of the afterlife. Our understanding of the kingdom of God and living in the presence of God and Jesus' return and eternal life, much of that, if not almost all of it, comes from the New Testament, not the Old Testament. What that meant was very simple. Listen to, listen to clap. The Hebrews did not have a highly developed notion of the afterlife. For the Hebrews, survival after death was primarily a matter of handing on the family name. You lived into the future. You made sure you were not forgotten through your children. That was your identity. That was your future. That is that on which you depended. In its concern for the individual's connection to a family, the Israelite's life bears comparison to a campfire. Separate twigs and branches burn to ashes and fade, but the family fire blazes on even if more twigs and ashes follow the previous ones. In other words, you might just be a twig or a branch on the family tree that would burn up. If you were the only one, it ended and it was over. But if there are more constantly coming, the fire continues to burn. That's the way you lived on. Singleness was not a viable option. And then along comes Paul and says, it's to be preferred. That's what I wish we all were. Not sure how he thought the church anyway. That's what I wish we all were, that you were like me. What caused the change? I'll tell you very simply what caused the change. What caused the change was the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus said, because Christ has risen, you too will rise. And because you too will rise, your future is no longer dependent on any other human being, child or otherwise. It is now dependent on the empty tomb and on the resurrection of Jesus. So you can live a contented life as a single person because the one who rose from the dead said, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I will bring you to be with me in my father's house. 
where there are many rooms and we will all be family and where you will never be forgotten. So you can live with contentment because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a single person. In fact, it leads Clapp to put it this way. I thought this was particularly powerful the way he stated it. He says, thus, singles live on because there is a resurrection. The married Christian with children ultimately should trust that his or her survival is guaranteed in the resurrection. The Christian single ultimately must trust in the resurrection. Therefore, Christian singles are radical witnesses to the resurrection. You can live contented because your future is safe in the hands of Jesus. But there's a second reality, a second reason spiritually why contented persons can live as singles in Jesus, and that's because of a concept that Clapp calls first family. I like his concept here. He says first family refers to the family of the church, to the body of Christ. Now, here's something that would have been radical in his day and is maybe even more radical in ours. But do you realize that the New Testament affirms that our deepest loyalty, our first family, is this one. This one, not our biological one. I understand that's a bit challenging. They came to Jesus in his teaching, say, your, your family's out here banging on the door. They want to see you, your mother, your brothers. They're, they're out here. And Jesus says, my family, my mother, my brothers, my sisters are those who are here, those who hear the word of God and live it. That's my family. Jesus hangs on the cross and looks down and sees his mother bereft. And he says, John, don't forget that's your mother. Jesus says to Mary, Mary, that's your son. First family, loyalty, not forgotten, cared for, belong as profoundly as does anyone else. That's first family. You belong here, single or married. But it's the single person that much more often feels left out. And with reason. I've shared with you at times about leading grief recovery groups up at the medical center. Years ago when I was doing that, I remember our afternoon groups were largely composed of an old, older population who didn't want to get out at night. I cannot tell you how many times I heard widows, sometimes widowers, but much more commonly widows, say this. When my husband died, our friend group, all the couples that used together to play cards, go out to eat, all the rest, our friend group stopped inviting me. They stopped. I not only lost my husband, I lost my community. I felt like I got leprosy. Suddenly, I wasn't involved anymore. That's a crime in the church because we are first family. We're called upon to draw in every person. If a single person knows my first family cares for me, I have places to eat lunch, I have places to be at Christmas, at Thanksgiving, I have a family to be with on the weekend to go to the beach, I have family, people I can call up, say, what are you doing? If that's the truth of their life and experience, contentment can be a reality. And so, 
If we're going to say to single people among us, contentment is a possibility for you, and they say, how is that true? First of all, through the resurrection of Jesus, and secondly, through this first family called church. So that deals with the spiritual side of contentment. But what about the relational side of it? Because after all, the Pew study said there were those who were fine as they were, didn't necessarily want to get married, and there were those who were interested in a relationship in marriage. So if that describes you, how can you live in contentment in that state? I think it has to do with maybe understanding certain approaches to marriage and relationships. So reading from Timothy Keller uh, writes an interesting paragraph. Keller says this, As a pastor in New York City, I've noticed an interesting sociological phenomenon. Some Christian singles in my church were raised in parts of the United States that are very traditional culturally, and there they got the you aren't a whole person until you're married mentality. Then they moved to New York City where they were bombarded with the you shouldn't marry until you've professionally made it big and you find the perfect partner who won't try to change you in any way message. Their first culture made them over-desirous of marriage. Their second culture made them over-afraid of marriage. Both the longing and the fear live in their hearts, sometimes in about equal strengths and at war with each other. So when you're at war with each other, it's very hard to be contented. Now, maybe I can use terminology that's just a little bit different to talk about this and talk about the two ditches on either side of the road as one that undervalues marriage and as another as one that over-idealizes marriage. So one side undervalues marriage, the other side over-idealizes marriage. In both of those camps, in both of those ditches, it's hard to be content as a single. So just a few words about this. We've talked some about this earlier in this series. Uh, it's just a piece of paper. I don't need to settle down. I can move from relationship to relationship, all of which can work for a period of time. But the evidence appears to be that as life continues to unfold, there comes a moment in time of saying, I don't have any sense that somebody is with me, for me, permanently. I'm missing on the sense of permanence, of deep and enduring commitment. I don't know what the future holds, but I feel deeply alone. For those who undervalue marriage, contentment can be a very real struggle. But I want to talk a little bit more about for those who over-idealize marriage. Over-idealizing marriage can lead to discontentment as rapidly as anything I know. Profound discontent. So Scott Stanley, from whom I've shared before in this series, uh, says this in his book, The Power of Commitment. He says, in 2001... The National Marriage Project at Rutgers University, headed by social historian Barbara Defoe Whitehead and sociologist David Popino, commissioned a national survey of 1,003 people ages 20 to 29 years old, 61% of whom had never married. In their survey, 
Popeno and Whitehead asked these young adults all sorts of questions about their views on marriage and divorce. What they found will likely not surprise you, but the implications of their findings are momentous for marriage. And he gives two, there are many, but he gives two of the findings here. First one, an overwhelming majority, 94%, I think that qualifies as an overwhelming majority, right? An overwhelming majority of never married singles agree with this statement. When you marry, you want your spouse to be your soulmate first and foremost. When you marry, you want your spouse to be your soulmate first and foremost, 94%. Second, less than half, 42%, of single young adults believe that it is important to find a spouse who shares your religion. Now, the reason Stanley shares these two is he points out that the concept of soulmate, by the evidence of their study, says that a soulmate does not need to be, in this definition, somebody who is spiritually aligned with you, religiously aligned with you, in the minds of these young people. Which then obviously raised in the minds of the researchers the question, well then, or, or of Stanley, the question then, well, what exactly do you mean then by soulmate? What is a soulmate? So after some nosing around and some looking, he found some of the definitions of soulmate. I'll share a few of them with you. A soulmate completes you. A soulmate accepts you no matter what. A soulmate has the unique capacity to love you more fully than anyone else on the planet. A soulmate is someone for whom you would not have to make major compromises. A soulmate is someone with whom you have a deep connection that is not based on mere infatuation. Soulmates have two minds, two hearts, and two souls that operate as one. A soulmate is someone you quickly know is the one. Hmm. We're going to have some married folks stand and share how this has worked out. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I forbid my wife to share her thoughts on these points. <laughs> so Stanley says that is such an over-idealization that he has developed a term to describe it, and that term is soulmate-ism. Soulmate-ism. So I want to read you, based on all of this, his definition of soulmateism. He says, what do I mean by soulmateism? Here's my definition. Soulmateism is the belief that you will find a mate in the one unique person on the planet who understands your deepest desires and fears, accepts all of who you are unconditionally, becomes joined to you, making one complete whole in mind, body, and soul. The power of this type of relationship is so great that you will know fully and rapidly when you find the one. Furthermore, if you have not married the one, you should move on. Soulmate. Now, if that is the understanding, certainly for married people who have probably been disabused of the idea a few hours, weeks into marriage, um, if that is your understanding of marriage as a single person, it's an over-idealization that will make contentment almost impossible when you enter into a relationship. 
But then the natural next question is, well, then if that's the case, what should we expect of marriage? Because the truth is, we desire depth and commitment and joy in addition to the pains and the struggles that naturally unfold. So if you'll permit me, just two more paragraphs from Stanley. Soulmateism conveys an expectation of heavenly connection that makes earthbound relationships more difficult. So we have a heaven-bound understanding, but an earthbound marriage. Makes it more difficult. As with any other unrealistic expectation, it can make you more disappointed than is warranted by the normal ups and downs of life. Marriage is hard. You know why marriage is hard? Because life is hard. That's the reality of life. And what Stanley is saying is, if I have this as my standard, then just the normal ups and downs cause all kinds of questions about, we can't be right for each other, can we? Look at how we're struggling with this or with that. The normal ups and downs of life, he says. It's not that I don't believe that we should desire and seek the deepest and most meaningful connections in our marriages. It's not that. That human beings want that level of connection is the main reason I have faith that marriage will not disappear. Marriage is the place where people are most likely to experience the level of security and safety that will satisfy the longings of their hearts. So marriage should grow in those directions. So then what is he saying? The next paragraph. However, there's a difference between the deepest desires of the heart in the pristine state of the Garden of Eden and what is realistic to expect to receive and give when married to another imperfect human being. The desire for perfection is within you and can motivate you to do greater things in your marriage, but the reality cannot come up to the level of the expectation you may have if you suffer from soulmateism. So I encourage you to think well about what you expect so that you will not be unhappy with your marriage because of impossible expectations about being perfectly loved by another imperfect human being. So how do we summarize that? Is it not true that what Stanley is driving at is rather than undervaluing or over-idealizing marriage, what we need is a realistic view of what marriage between two sinful human beings who live as disciples of Jesus is and will be. A realistic view, a realistic understanding can create an underlying sense of contentment that we're not perfect, but we're growing. Amen. We are loved by Jesus unconditionally. That covenantal love allows contentment even in the face of imperfections. Maybe that's the direction we grow. And so contentment. Contentment is a possibility for the single person. Spiritually, it's a possibility because the resurrection secures your identity and your future. And first family gives you a place to truly and deeply belong. Contentment is possible because the realistic approach to marriage will lead to a greater degree of happiness should you choose to marry. So, what is our assignment this week? I have an assignment for married folk and for single folk. So let me start with the married folk. This is an assignment not just for you, but for me, for Anita and me. If we are to approach our church as first family, 
if we are to live faithfully to the concepts of Jesus in the body of Christ, we need to next week and next month and next year and throughout our lives consistently set another place at the table, buy another ticket to the ball game, make sure there's one more seat in the van on our trip to the beach, and invite single persons among us to be a deep and real and beloved part of the family. Whether they ever marry or not is immaterial. That's their choice, their choice with God's. Our choice and our task is to say, you belong to this family. You are part of us, and we welcome you. That's our assignment as married, as married people, and then the single people. Your assignment, what I encourage you to do is to pray for God to give you the gift of contentment, deep, enduring contentment. Contentment based on who you are in Christ and who you are in his body. Contentment with the realities of life. A contentment that the body of Christ and the being of Christ can at this point, this stage in your life, be sufficient. Pray for contentment. Because if you never choose to marry, contentment is a very good way to live. And if you are open to the possibility of marriage, well, there's something curious, something that I've noticed over the years, not once or twice, but on quite a number of occasions. It is when a person who may be open to a relationship decides to be content, decides to be at peace, decides to be at rest, that others are more drawn to that sense of depth. So whether you ever marry or not, you will feel like you are consistently contributing to the relationships of which you are a part. And when you have that contentment, I wonder if this isn't maybe the only place, only place where life with Jesus and fairy tales actually line up. You saw it in the meditation that both with the life of Jesus and with fairy tales, the best comes last. So that's your assignment. By the grace of Jesus and by the power of his spirit, may you find contentment. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for the power of his love and the power of his word. And Lord, ever remind us of the ancient words of St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.
Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.